you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 13 this morning. So we're going to spend our time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we come before you now humbled by our sinful nature, our our brokenness. We thank you for your son Jesus who came into this world to die uh, freely on a cross so that we might be redeemed and rescued. We ask that your spirit that dwells in each and every one of us, each and every one of the believers here, that you would continue to pull and draw us to you through the Spirit's working. And that you would work in the lives of those who have not yet turned to your Son as their Savior. In Jesus' precious name. Like I said, Luke chapter 13 this morning. We'll be in verses 1 to 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, he being Jesus. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all of the other, all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Again, Holy Spirit, we ask that your presence be known in the name of Jesus. Amen. Once again, we find ourselves in this section of Luke. Last week we looked more towards the end of 13, and now we're going to look at the beginning of 13. 
We're in this section where Jesus is trying to show us or trying to remind us or whatever verb you want to put there. He's trying to show us that there are, again, two types of people. There are those who will be saved by the blood of Jesus and those who will not be saved by the blood of Jesus. We as as Christians, as followers of Christ, do not believe in universal salvation. We believe in particular salvation. And salvation is not because God is not able to save all, but because God allows us to choose not him, to not choose him, excuse me. Today we're going to talk about repentance. It's a church word, a word that I think many of us misunderstand. A lot of times we think that repentance is is the New Testament's replacement of a sacrificial uh, as a sacrifice offered for our sins. I think that's a common a common misunderstanding. And I think one of the reasons why that's a common misunderstanding starts not with repentance in the New Testament, but rather in the sacrifices of the Old Testament. I've said many times, and, and I'm sure I'll continue to say this, that that the Old Testament, the Old Testament sacrificial system, is not predominantly about sin sacrifices or sacrifices that the people of Israel would make to cover their own sinfulness. Not every sacrifice that was offered in on the altar in the temple or in the tabernacle was because of sin. Actually, the vast majority of the sacrifices that happened in uh, in the temple were more praise and worship sacrifices than they were sin sacrifices. We we know this with confidence because if all sins needed a sacrifice to cover it, there would be no animals left on earth. It's just that simple. The Israelites would have had to go out and to all the earth to find sacrifices. Now, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm neither am I saying that there are no sin sacrifices. There most certainly are. There is the Day of Atonement, where the high priest, he would uh, cleanse himself, purify himself in a particular and special way, more than normal. And he would take one lamb and he would sacrifice, and this would be the, the sacrifice needed to cover all of the sins of the people of Israel for the previous year. And then there was another lamb that they would then let go, which was a symbol of the sins now leaving the nation of Israel. Both, both lambs are as important as the other. So this happened. That happened once a week, once a year, excuse me. And it happened for all of Israel. And yes, there were certain times when you would make sacrifices to cover particular sins because you were at the temple. Jesus' uh, parents, Mary and Joseph, they go to, they go to Jerusalem uh, at some later point in Jesus' life, likely 12 years after his birth, and they make purification sacrifices. This is probably the first time in, in at least 12 years that they went to the temple to sacrifice to cover their particular sins sinfulness, or to be associated with their particular sinfulness. Now I say associated with because this is what we most often misunderstand about the sacrificial system. We think that the sacrifice that is made is the covering 
that rescues the people of Israel. The people of Israel are saved not because they continue to make sacrifices, but because their God has rescued and redeemed them. Paul teaches us in the, in the book of Romans that the, the point of the law was not to make man righteous, but to illuminate man's unrighteousness and our desperate need for God to be our Savior. And so the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they're not about paying the debt. Not in the same way that we think about paying the debt. Now, there most certainly is a debt, and it does most certainly need to get paid. And we, as New Testament believers, recognize that the sacrifice on, of Christ on the cross is the same sacrifice as the atonement. But it's in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the work of God, that is the payment necessary, not the lamb of God, not the lamb of the sacrifice. I hope that makes sense. I think it's very critical to how we understand the New Testament. And it's especially critical for us to understand uh, repentance. So often, again, we think of repentance as this replacement. We used to have to make a sacrifice for God to forgive me. And until I ask God to forgive all the particular sins of my life, I won't be forgiven for those particular sins. That's not at all what repentance is. Repentance really has absolutely nothing to do with our salvation. At least not in the sense of sacrifice, payment. What repentance actually is, and most people use, the, use uh, a, a turning, right? You were going this way towards death. You actually were already dead, by the way. You were, but you were continuing to go towards death, and you make a 180-degree turn, and now you're going towards life, towards God, towards Christ and righteousness. That's what repentance is. It's not just a, a feeling in our hearts. While that's part of it, it's not all of it. We are to feel sorrow for the wickedness and the brokenness that is our life, but that is not what repentance is. It's a change. It's, a, it's an action. It's a turning, but... But what we'll find in today's passage is not about that one-time turn because the reality, right, Romans 7, the reality is that I'm still bound up in the flesh. And while my heart and my, and my motivations desire to follow after the Spirit, my flesh is weak and I cannot, as Paul says. And so repentance is not this one-time moment, but it's a constant fighting to continue as my flesh pulls me and tries to make me want to go back towards the things of death, I continue to fight for the things of life. But repentance is also not, it's also not small. I think maybe we could replace the word repentance with maybe a synonym. Or a, a synonym phrase, perhaps. I think perhaps we could replace follow me out of Jesus' mouth. No, but unless you follow me, you will all likewise perish. Unless you turn from your wicked ways and turn towards me, you will all 
likewise perish. This is, this is really what faith is, right? It's a relinquishment of my old life into the life of Jesus. Repentance is not a work that we must do in order to continue to, to earn our way into the presence of God. Absolutely not. That work has been done and completed in Jesus. And now he is calling us to turn and follow him. Let's look at our passage this morning. It's two parts. The first part is broken up into two stories where Jesus will conclude with a repetition, a slightly, slightly altered, but it is a repetition nonetheless. We're introduced in the first verse to some people. It's likely not the Pharisees because Luke doesn't hesitate to tell us the Pharisees. It's some other people. And they come up to Jesus and they share this story. Now, both of the stories that Jesus is going to talk about are only found here and in no other literature. Nobody else writes about these stories. It's very interesting. We don't have any additional information. And I think it's because if we had additional information, we would make it something that it's not supposed to be. So here's what we're told. So that there's these Galileans whose blood is mingled with their sacrifices by Pilate. Pilate is the governor of the, of the region around Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, for Israel, is the only place that sacrifices are legally allowed to be made. So what is likely happening is that there are these Galileans, similar to Jesus. Jesus is a Galilean. They went to the temple to make sacrifices. And while they're at the temple making sacrifices, Pilate comes in or sends people in, guards or something, and either has them killed, bloodshed, or very physically harmed, bloodshed. And this would be a figure of speech, that their blood was mingled with their sacrifice. Now, it's very possible that as they were making sacrifices, they were killed and literally their blood fell onto the altar, but that's probably less likely the case. But again, that's all really speculation. Basically, what Jesus, or what these some people are talking about is a fairly heinous crime. I mean, really, almost all civilizations have some, have some sense of sacred. Right? We, don't, we don't typically see people bursting into churches trying to grab somebody who's deserving to be arrested. There's some kind of sanctuariness about churches, not just churches, but mosques and synagogues and all sorts of things. This is why it's so absolutely heinous when, when you see a movie portraying a, a church full of innocent w women and children being burned to the ground. It's really ridiculous to have happen. It's much worse than if you would burn a house to the ground that has those same women and children. And it's something sacred about this space that we meet together. And Pilate goes in and he, he takes life. It's heinous. It's, it's more than normal. The second story Jesus then tells, the, 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 some people, they tell the first story. Then Jesus in verse 4, he tells this other story. He says, what about these 18 people who were killed by the tower at Siloam? Apparently the, the building was in disrepair and a 
stone or boulder or multiple boulders fell down off of what is probably a watchtower near one of the gates of the city of Jerusalem, and it fell on 18 people and killed them all. A big stone falling on their head. Again, crazy, not normal way to die. We don't typically hear about people being killed by towers falling on their heads. This is outside of the normal. And this is what makes the people who are bringing these stories up feel a little bit uncomfortable or feel like something is strange about this. Likely, it's because these people are bad people and they deserve bad deaths. But that's not the correct theology. Uh, in John chapter 9, we see something kind of similar. John chapter 9, verse 1, it's not in the, on the screen, so if you want to turn there, you can, but it, I'm only going to be here a second. It says, as he passed by, Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and, the, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? So the idea, at, at, at least at this point in Israel's history, the idea was that that when bad things happen to us, it's because of sin that's actually my sin or maybe my parents' sin. We're told in the Old Testament that the sins of the father will, will go down to the seventh generation. So my seventh, seven times grandchildren will, will be punished for the sins that I commit. But what we learn in the whole scripture, if we look at the whole counsel of God, it's not about my one sin being punished by a thing in my life, but rather the sinfulness of mankind causes bad things to happen. Sometimes bad things happen abnormally to people who are actually quite good. Good and righteous people suffer greatly because sin is part of this world, not because they have some secret sin. This is really what we learn in the book of Job, if you're curious. So Jesus, he has to address this. This is the mentality in the back of these people's mind. These people must have been awful people. And so Jesus scolds them. This is not right, he says. Verse 2, he says, he answered them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered this way? Or, or in the second story, he says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, no, he says. Absolutely not. No. As a matter of fact, we're all the same sinners. See, we live in a world where we rank our sins, or our, maybe let's put it in a different term, crimes, because that's really how we think about sin, right? It's crimes against God. We think that a little white lie, it's not really sin at all, is it? It's just a deception. But rape? Murder? I'll put those people to death. We all can stand justified in that condemnation, right? Because we're not bad like them. But the reality, what, the, what the Scriptures teach us is actually, in God's sight, we are all the same wicked. It has to be this way. I hope we understand. It has to be. There must be a line in the sand where, where goodness and wickedness is drawn. Because once that line becomes fluid, we, wicked and sinful people, we will move it. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, just think for a moment that there are now two states, I think, at least, 
two states in the United States of America who think it is perfectly fine to murder babies at 40 weeks pregnant. Don't tell me that we're not, we're not going to move the line. That is absolute absurdity. We will and do move the line. We, we did it just a second ago and we said, oh, a little white lie, that's not really that bad. But in God's eyes, it's the same wickedness that plagues every single person. We are so desperately sinful and wicked. R.C. Sproul, he uses this picture where he says, just imagine these two different people. On this side is Jesus, as close to God as you can be as a person. Actually, he is, in fact, God. I think he actually uses Paul as an example. The apostle. He's, he's, he's as good as a person can be. He's a great man. And then, and then all the way over here, who's the most wicked man? Give me a name. Hit, uh, Judas. Hitler. He's all the way over here, close to Satan. Now, where are we? Where are you? Where was Paul? Was he really over here by Jesus? No, he was. He was right next to Satan. He was right next to right next to, to Hitler himself. We are all wicked, and in God's sight, we are all just the same wickedness. And so Jesus is like, wait, 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 wait. You think you think that these people were somehow worse than everybody else in receiving this punishment? No. I tell you, I tell you, absolutely not. No, unless you repent, unless you change, unless you turn from the course of death and darkness to the course of life in Christ Jesus, you will all perish the same way. And and Paul here, Jesus or Luke here, Jesus, excuse me, is, is not talking about perishing just death. He's talking about eternal, permanent condemnation against the will of God, by the way, he is, he is talking about hell itself. Do you not turn from your, from your sinful, wicked ways to the Lord Jesus Christ. You will also perish eternally and permanently. And I think this is so important that Jesus gives us a second example. And he repeats himself almost verbatim. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. But the repent there is different in, the first, in verse 3 and in verse 5. There's different tenses. There's different tenses. We, we think of tenses when we think of verbs, right? We, we know past tense, I ran. Present tense, I'm running. In future tense, I am I, or I will run, right? We, we get tenses. This is the same thing that's happening. It's just in a different tense. The word repent is in a different tense. The first time, it's what's known as a present imperative. Repent continually, permanently. It is a mark of your life. I tell you, unless you continually mark your life by turning away from your sinfulness, you will surely perish. And then the second time is in what is known as the errorist. Learned some grammar this week. The errorist, which is a single decisive action. There's a moment in our lives when we find the realization of our desperate need. 
both are exactly true. It's the same difference between justification, the moment by when, at, at which we are saved and justified in God's sights when the blood of Christ covers us, and then sanctification, the continued work of that salvation in our lives, the changing of what is happening to us. I tell you, unless you repent now and always, you will all likewise perish. This is a message that we do not want to hear. In fact, this is the message that makes Christianity so uh, so offensive. Because we live in a world that tells us every single day, many, many times a day, that you're okay just exactly as you are. You're not. You're sinful and wicked. Repent. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ or you will perish. And then Jesus gives us a parable and it may seem like this parable doesn't fit doesn't connect. But I think the reason why we can connect it is because Jesus uses a fig tree, which is most often representative, especially for, for Luke, of the people of Israel. This is a man planted, he had a, a fig tree, and he planted it in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit, uh, and he found none. And he turns to the gardener, and he's like, look, this fruit tree hasn't, uh, hasn't borne fruit for three years. Now I have come seeking it and, uh, on this fruit tree, and I can find none. Now this is the, the gardener here. He's or not the gardener, the owner of that fig tree. He's actually he's actually right. He knows a little bit about gardening. Apparently, he knows a little bit about fig trees. If you get a, a new fruit tree and you plant it in the ground and you wait until until spring or whenever that harvest season is, it will not have fruit on it. A brand new one year old fruit tree will not bear fruit. It doesn't. It has to grow. It has to it has to send out branches and things like that. It's got to set up the system. Likely that second year, if you plant it new, that second year, it will also not grow fruit. But in the third year, typically, this is when a fruit tree, if properly planted and properly maintained and, and taken care of, will bear fruit. And it, when it doesn't, it is a dead tree or basically like a dead tree. It's a worthless tree, as a matter of fact. You and I... Each and every person in this room are three-year-old fruit trees that have not borne fruit. We all justly and rightly deserve, deserve because of our sinful nature, Paul says, the wages of sin is death. We all rightly and justly deserve to be cut down and thrown into the fire. We in ourselves have nothing to offer God. Nothing at all. And then the gardener, I think is very representative of Christ Jesus. He says, and he answered him, Sir, let it alone this, this year also. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig around it. I'm going to put fertilizer. I'm going to put manure around that tree. And I'm going to give it every chance it's got. I'm going to make a little trench. It's going to have... Some, it's going to have place for water to penetrate into the ground and give the, the tree good nutrients. I'm going to fertilize. I'm going to do everything. I'm going to tend to it. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to watch it. And next year, next year, if at that point it bears fruit, awesome. Praise the Lord. But if it doesn't, cut it down. What is Jesus saying here? Well, the first thing I think Jesus is saying is, is, man, do we not serve an incredibly merciful God? 
even know 3, 10, 30, 50, 60, 70, how many years we've gone without bearing fruit? And the gardener's like, one more year. We serve a merciful God. But our lives will come to an end. And sometimes our lives come to an end before we expect it. Most of us in this room, we don't think about today being a gift from God. I don't think. Maybe some of us. I don't very often. I don't think of every breath being mercy. God allowing me to have that breath that I just took is, is Him not rightfully putting me to death. Every moment of your life is a, is a merciful gift that God has, has graciously given to you. And those of us who come to this church and regularly attend here, we get it. Many of us. We get it. We know it. We, have, we repent and our lives are marked by repentance and we are being actively transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit that's in us. That The gardener digging around our roots and, and nourishing us. But what's, what's so scary about this passage is that Jesus is talking to people who thought they were bearing fruit. They were coming to church and they were like, yeah, this is great. I come to church. I'm good. No, you're not. Jesus tells us that there are going to be many people who come to him and say, Lord, Lord, because I didn't know you. Coming to church saying, Jesus, Jesus, isn't. Isn't what God has called us to. It isn't what God has demanded of us. God is gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. But that mercy will eventually end. Do not wait until tomorrow. Do not press your luck to see if your year has just begun. I hope and pray that everybody in this room has many more days. But a deeper, more more pressing prayer is that it wouldn't matter how many more days you have. That you would turn to the Lord Jesus not in perfection. Don't misunderstand repentance. Repentance is not, I've got it all figured out. Jesus does not come to save those who are well. He, come, he comes to save those who are sick. The passage that Matt read for us this morning, come you wicked to me, Jesus says. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Jesus in the Old Testament? It's like chomping at the bed. I can't wait to come and save these people.
on us. We are humbled. By our complete and utter lack of anything that we could give to offer to you, give or offer to you. We are also humbled in knowing that you love and care, care for us so much that you have given us year after year working and tilling the soil that is where our roots lie. But today, Lord, we hear you calling us. We hear you challenging us to know that this offer does not last into eternity. The work that you have done on the cross is complete and sufficient. It's offered to us if we would turn to you and receive it. Spirit of God, I pray again that you would work in the lives who of those who already call on Jesus as Lord and Savior and in the lives of those who do not. Draw souls to your God and Father. In Jesus' precious name. Precious.